Giving back has always been our culture at Subaru of Gwinnett. During the Subaru Loves to Help initiative, we're partnering with our friends at Rainbow Village to provide coats, shoes, and socks to those dealing with homelessness. At Subaru of Gwinnett, our hope is that these essential items will not only keep those in urgent need protected, warm, and dry, but that it can have a significant impact on their mental and emotional well-being. Subaru of Gwinnett, more than a car dealer. Visit SubaruofGwinnett.com to learn more. Welcome to the Janelle King Show. I am Janelle King, and this is Extra 106.3, and this is where we discuss kitchen table topics that are typically banned from family gatherings, but necessary to have a strong republic. You have joined me on this Saturday, or you're listening on our Encore episode at 9 a.m. right here on Extra 106.3, or maybe you are, are, are connecting with the podcast on the podcast park or wherever you get your podcast, but either way... We're so grateful to have you. If it's your first time, thank you, thank you, thank you. You can always go back and listen to past shows. We're going to continue our talk, our topic on uh, what I call the hot 24. Um, the hot 24 or the hot topics of this 2024 election. I believe it's going to be abortion. I think election is going to be on there somewhere. Immigration, of course, healthcare, and the economy. Well, you know what they say, right? It's the economy, stupid. And I'm not calling you stupid, but that's what... The saying is, and that's how it goes. Now, if you are one of those people that want to engage or you hear something that I say that you're like, oh, I don't know about that, or hey, I love it and I want to expound upon it or I have a great idea, feel free to go to my website, allthingsjking.com. That's allthingsjking.com. And on the front page, you will see a uh, little area called Tusk Talks. And this is where... Um, I like for all of us to kind of come together and put our heads together and talk about different topics. And if you want to engage with me, feel free. I do respond. Um, And I'm excited. I'm excited about being able to interact with those who are listening. So please, 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 please do that. All right. Today, what are we going to talk about? Today, we're going to talk about the economy as we continue this series, right? We're going to talk about the economy. And before I dive into the, the meat and potatoes of this particular show. Um, I want to give you some 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 heads up. I want to give you some uh, information that some of you may not have known. Some may have known. But um, let's just start with some stats. Let's start with where we were and where we are today. A gallon of milk. In 2018, a gallon of milk was $2.50 to $3.50 per gallon. In 2022... We're looking at a whopping, on average, $4.09 for a gallon of milk. Um, diapers. Diapers were right around $25 on average. And um, give or take a few, may have been around $30.35 in 2018. They're $60 at some Walmarts in 20, as of 2022. Child care. Childcare was a whopping $12,120. Let's just make it an even $12,000 for infant care and $10,000 annually if you had a toddler in toddler care. Once again, we're looking at a situation where um, we're like, wow, that's a lot. Well, fast forward to 2022 for on average daycare cost is right around 14760000 So we're going to round that up to $15,000. Um, 
And on average, if you want a nanny, a full-time nanny, you're looking at $38,000 a year. But if you just want to go to daycare, $15,000 additional dollars. Dining out. This is interesting. So dining out, on average, um, people, an individual would spend around $3,400 or $3,500 a year in dining out. Well, it's around $3,600 now, which some of you may feel like, oh, it's just an extra $1,000. But yeah, it's right around thirty six. But the interesting thing is that we're the, the actual going out and eating in America, we're down 5% from previous years. So in other words, the cost has gone up, but people obviously are eating out less. And a lot of people are saying that it's not necessarily because of the cost, that it's mostly because of the fact that uh, people are sensing that the economy is shifting, that we might be in a downward space. So people are saving their money and doing more to save. Now, what I know is that in politics, when basic needs are impacted, policy is typically created. That's the way it typically goes. And the difference, though, is that there's two different ways of looking at policy. And I think we're gonna, I'm going to try my best to show you how I view policy, um, but not, most importantly, the difference between Democrat policy and conservative policy. So on average, 41.2 million people in a total of 21.6 million households receive monthly SNAP benefits or food stamps. Because that's pretty much what SNAP is, is food stamps. And this was in the fiscal year of 2022, which ran between October 2021 and September 2022. The current food stamp program now, now, now keep in mind before I go too much in depth, I'm going to kind of backtrack on where we are, but I want you to keep those numbers in mind that as of 2022, there was about 41.2 million people who are receiving food stamps. The current food stamp program began in 1964 and it took a couple of years for the really, really rev up, but I will say that it wasn't until July of 1974 that it became a situation where states were now involved and they share administrative duties over the program with uh, the federal government. So the federal federal government kind of oversee saw it, but then you had the um, states who were responsible for you know, really um, implementing it, so to speak. They were required to extend it into all jurisdictions within their borders. So it was your responsibility as a state to extend this. In that year, 12.9 million people, right around 6% of the total U.S. population at the time received food stamp benefits. So as of 19, July of 1974, we saw we were right around 6% of the total population was receiving these benefits. Total part- participation over time kind of went through the, you know, the ebb and flows and, um, of, of, of that was normal to a new, with a new program and, and trying to develop it. But it was driven by a lot of economic conditions as well as there were some changes that took place as far as eligibility, but between the fiscal years of 1980 to 2008, so 1980, right? So that's like, give or take a few after that 1974, 
1980, the share of all U.S. households receiving food stamp benefits went kind of balanced between 7% and 11%. So by 2008, we were looking at 7 and 11%. But the percentage rose rapidly during the recession. Um, so, you know, we had the whole reception, recession that took place in 2008. And it ended up leaving us where we peaked at right around 18.8%. Um, and that was during the fiscal year of 2013. And that represented 23.1 million households or 47.6 million people. So after the recession, we were at 47.6 million people. Now, remember, on average, now in 2022, the average was right around 41.2%. Okay. Okay. So we had the recession that allowed that, that forced a lot of people to have to get on um, unemployment. And here we are. So, well, March of 2020, Congress authorized an extra um, boost to the SNAP benefits or the food stamp benefits for recipients. And they suspended the work and training requirements for the duration of the declared public health emergency. So you no longer had to show that you were um, obtaining or you're looking for work. The number of recipients immediately jumped from 37.2 million in March of 2020 to 40.9 million one month later. And it topped out in September of 2020 at just over 43 million recipients. Right now, we're looking at on average around 13% of the population of the resident population is receiving food stamps. 13%. It's safe to say that the government's intervention, I feel, led to more poverty. Um, When you look at what's happened, I think that's what we can say. What is the role of the government? That's what we're missing right now. Many people don't understand the role of the government and how it relates to economics. And there's several things that the government is supposed to be responsible for, that they're supposed to make sure happens And it should lead to a positive economic space. But as we just saw, any time the government got involved, it ended up leading to more. It seems like more people are in poverty. More people are on food stamps. More people are struggling. Now, under Trump's administration, we did see a drop off of a lot of um, drop off of people that were on food stamps. But it just kind of came right back after covid Because we removed certain requirements and eligibility and we allowed a number of people to jump on it. Now, I'm not here to talk about food stamps or entitlement benefits because I believe that the conversation around the economy is much bigger than that. I think that we wouldn't need to talk about food stamps or entitlement benefits if we talked about how we can get people in a position where they can work and defend themselves. So... When we return, we're going to go a little bit deeper into the role of the government when it comes to the economy. We're going to talk about Trump and Bidenomics. And lastly, you're going to get my take on the matter. So stay tuned to the Janelle King show. You're listening to Extra 106.3. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Janelle King show. I am Janelle King and this is extra 106.3. As I stated before, 
if you missed the first half of this show, don't worry. You can always go back and listen to the full show in, in its entirety. Every Tuesday when it drops on my podcast, which you can find on the podcast park right here, extra 106.3, or you can get it wherever you get your podcast. You can just search the Janelle King show, or you can go to my website, allthingsjking.com. That's allthingsjking.com. Now, before the break, we started talking about the economy, which I believe is a part of my hot 24, which are the the big issues that's going to be on the table when it comes to this upcoming 2024 election cycle. And um, we, we ended it by talking about what is the basic role of the government, because it felt like whenever the government gets involved, it always turns into something else that it shouldn't be. And it, it tends to seem like we lead to more, it leads to more poverty, more, just more issues rather than allowing the market to adjust itself and kind of going with it. So what is the role of the government as it relates to the economy and as it relates to economics? Well, the first one is regulation and oversight. The government is supposed to enact and enforce regulation to ensure that there's fair competition and to protect us as consumers as we are out here purchasing. I think the overall goal is to maintain market integrity, which basically means that we are the, the government's goal is to make sure that while capitalism is running wild and doing what it's supposed to do, meaning pulling people out of poverty, creating opportunities for others, that it's being done in a way that's regulated to make sure that there's not a monopoly. There's not two or three people that's maximizing everything, controlling everything. But it almost feels like the government has turned itself into a monopoly. But that's a whole other conversation. But that's one role of the government. Another role is monetary policy, like the Federal Reserve, the central banking system, which is the central banking system of the United States. But the whole point is to formulate and implement monetary policy. Um, the Federal Reserve, you know, it adjusts interest rates and it, it's used as a tool to influence money supply. It can kind of just goes on and on and on. But that's another role of the government is to make sure that our interest rates and things are regulated. Fiscal policy overall, the government is, is supposed to utilize fiscal policy, meaning that we're not overspending, but we're doing things with that we're, we're, we're have, we have good financial management. This involves taxation, it involves government spending, it involves making sure that we're managing the overall health of the economy, which I don't think we're doing a great job at. And Congress ultimately determines the federal budget and it makes makes major decision, decisions about taxes and expenditures and other things that ultimately impact economic growth, employment, and where we are right now, inflation. So that's like, so fiscal policy is something that we also are hoping that the government um, plays a major role in sustaining and making sure it is sustained. Um, obviously, you have your social safety nets, of course, or your entitlements, that's out there. Um, but I, I think that we can get rid of some of these things if we were more fiscally responsible. Um, infrastructure investment, national defense investment, property rights and, and the rule of law, you know, just making sure that the government establishes and protects property rights and enforces the rule of law as it relates to that, you know, a stable legal framework is essential for businesses and it operate, it allows, it allows to businesses to operate and to have a smooth and functioning market as a whole. So what happens when the government oversteps their boundaries? Well, typically crime increases and poverty shows its head. 
that's what typically happens when the government oversteps their boundary or the government creates too much bureaucracy and too much red tape. And why is this important? Because bureaucracy and red tape typically leads to corruption. Take Senegal. If you look at Senegal and the Senegalese people, um, there's certain things that takes us seconds to do that takes them weeks to do, right? So, and, and, and when I study what was happening in some of these other countries where there's a lot of government overreach and a lot of bureaucracy, I noticed that there was a, a, a common thread and that's corruption. And it makes you ask yourself, are the people corrupt? But in fact, while, yeah, of course, obviously, as an individual, you're making a decision to do something that's corrupt or you do something that's illegal, but you can't, you can't deny that there are things in place that almost makes people feel like they're almost forced into a corner. Like, for instance, in Senegal, it takes weeks to get a business license, weeks. And that's after you get tons and tons of signatures but those those weeks, it takes us about three minutes to get a business license here in America. Let's not, let's 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 talk about the fact that it takes them hundreds of dollars to get one document notarized. Hundreds of dollars. So in order to even apply for your business license, that takes weeks for you to to even get to the point where you can apply for a business license. You better come with some money because it's going to take hundreds of dollars to get it notarized. And sometimes you have to notarize six and seven times where we can become notaries over here and, you know, we can just do things. But when you have these level of this, when you have this level of, of, of red tape, that's causing people to have to position themselves where they, they either have to wait long for long periods of time or they may not ever get it or they have to kiss the ring or cut a check here or give this person some money over here. It breeds backdoor options. It creates these backdoor options where you now have people who are willing to donate or, or, or I'm sorry, not donate, but are willing to do what it is you need them to do, but for a fee. And now we're in corruption. It happens all the time. The economy is front and center, no matter what state, what country, what town, what community you are in. And the state of the economy matters. It matters. Every American has an opinion on the state of the economy because you can feel it. And this election year will not be any different. Essentially, we have two incumbents running for president, essentially, because we have a former president and a current president, right? And the reason why I say that is because there are some key indicators that prove that obviously you have the power of incumbency or, you know, you can utilize this power in order to win. For one is name recognition. You know, most voters um, are more likely to support the person they feel more familiar with, even if they've never met the person, the incumbent's name and what they associate them with matters. Campaign funding. Most of the, most cases, incumbents have, uh, have easier access to campaign funds because they've done this before. They know who their key donors are and they're willing to step up and do it again. They have established networks that they can kind of go through in order to obtain these contributions and be able to, you know, connect with people. Um, they have in con- constituent services, right? People have already interacted with their administration. They know what they're, they kind of feel like they know what they're getting. Media coverage, 
Obviously, a legislative record matters, access to resources, as we've mentioned, political endorsements. And it's just experience and this idea that they are more experienced overall or they have expertise is another element of this that typically plays a role. But what's going to happen in 2024 is going to be really quite interesting. So what's going to happen in 2024 is there's going to be a matching up of the two. And this is should Biden become the nominee on the Democrat side? We're not 100 percent sure. But should he become the nominee um, and he stay in the race? It's going to be a matchup more than likely between Trump and the nominee. And that's not to discredit Nikki Haley. I am not one of those people who feel like I need to force her out of the race. Does it look like it's going to get better? I It doesn't because that's just the way things are shaping up. But I believe that you should run through the finish line. So I'm not one of those people that's advocating for her to get put out of this race. Anyway, so we know there's going to be a matchup. So for the sake of the fact that Nikki does not have a presidential record, but President Trump does, what is what did it look like? Like, what was it like under the Trump administration? Now, before COVID-19 and the, the pandemic hit, the United States as a whole, we experienced a period of great economic growth. We had low unemployment rates and a strong stock market. Um, something that President Trump introduced was the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement, the USMCA, which replaced the North American Free Trade Agreement or the NAFTA agreement. And it aimed to modernize trade relationships between three countries and to address issues such as labor standards, intellectual property and agricultural trade. All of that led to a strong economy as well as his tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, which was very major. And it it, it was the whole focus was to stimulate uh, economic growth by reducing corporate taxes and providing tax cuts for individuals. And then ultimately, overall, he was simplifying the tax code. And the Trump administration really pushed aggressively on deregulation across various different sectors. Um, and their goal was to reduce regulatory burdens on businesses. That's something that we saw him do. I spoke at UPS when he did that just as a business. Uh, re- I was representing our my husband and I's business. And we were just kind of talking about how when you, re- when, when you relieve us of all these regulatory burdens, ultimately there's something else that comes into play. It allows us to hire more. It gives us more money in our business so that we can do more. And it typically goes towards increasing your um, human capital and uh, which opens up opportunity for more jobs. So, you know, part of some of those regulatory issues that he was able to roll back, it was environmental regulations, financial regulations and some other stuff. But don't say that we didn't do anything for the for for the economy. Uh, for the um, environment because we did, (laughs) we did. And then obviously, like I mentioned before, there was record low unemployment. So when people say things like, I don't like the person, but I really love his policies. That's what they're talking about, right? But that's what they're talking about. Now, there was things that I did agree with. I didn't like the ban on bump stocks, stops. I didn't like that. Um, and I, I really want to know where he stands on the abortion topic. However, I think that at this point we need to push it back to the States like we did and let the States handle it. But overall, the economy was strong. The economy was strong. 
And that matters because that's something that you can feel. We all felt it. And every leader understands the power of the economy. So that explains why Biden decided to introduce Bidenomics. Because every American leader understands that the economy will drive turnout. They understand that it will drive political attention and ultimately election outcomes. So what was Biden's attempt to fix the failed economy that he created? Well, here are some key elements of Bidenomics that I found. And I and I, there's a common thread with all of them that I'm going to hit at the end. The first one was in Bidenomics, he had a response to COVID-19 and economic release that included a comprehensive vaccination plan and about $1.9 trillion in COVID-19 relief pack, relief package that he coined the American Rescue Plan. And the whole goal was to provide direct payments to individuals. He wanted to extend unemployment benefits, support small businesses, in quotations, and fund vaccination efforts, okay? Emphasis on fund. Let's go to the next topic. The next topic was his infrastructure investment, where he proposed a infrastructure plan known as the American Jobs Plan, which was set to address the country's country's aging infrastructure. And the plan allocated funds, another word, funds for traditional infrastructure, roads, bridges, public transit, as well as he invested in broadband, clean energy manufacturing, according to the Bidenomics plan now. How is this going to return on what's the return on the investment? We don't know yet. This has all just happened. So just keep that in mind. The American Families Plan. He proposed a focus on social infrastructure, which is weird to me, but that's what he calls it. Anyway, he was it was an investment in education, health care and family support. And this included um, free community college, universal pre-K and expanding child care support. Again, he planned to fund all of this. Why? How did he plan to fund it? By increasing taxes on high income earners. In other words, tax the rich is what they love. He obviously did some climate change stuff, but you know, we, we want to stay focused on the economy right now. Um, and so there was tax policy. Biden proposed changes to the tax code where he, his, his, his whole goal was to fund a spending plan that would address income inequality. Now, how does that make sense, right? Like you want to fund a spending plan that's somehow going to address the income disparity. <laughs> Quite interesting. Now, remember, oh, oh, let's not forget He also raised corporate tax rates from 21% to 28%, increasing taxes on um, on corporate or or high earners, um, individuals that were high earners, closing what he considered to be loopholes. And now on the flip side of that, President Trump reduced corporate tax and that led to more individual improvement. How does that work? Why? Because... Whenever you increase taxes on particularly businesses, you find yourself in a situation where that amount of money needs to be made up. So the companies typically cut wherever their biggest expenditure is, and that's typically labor, and that leads to layoffs. 
Oh, and then let's not forget he's advocated for a $15 federal minimum wage instead of letting business decide what they can pay. Here's a common denominator. Democrats throw money at the problem and it gets worse. It's a temporary fix. Republicans, we typically like to initiate a response that will lead to a long-term win. Again, cut corporate taxes means that businesses can keep more money, which means that then they can either hire more or they can use that income to increase wages or, you know, take care of the business as a whole to make sure it's stable so that they won't have to lay people off. I mean, it's just kind of how it works. The problem with Bidenomics is that they're always trying to convince us that we're not seeing the very thing that we are feeling. It's, it's, it's that, it's like they want us to, they want to tell us that what we're feeling is not due to their political decisions, but in fact is due to a lack of policy And if they can just create more policy that creates more spending, things will be better. But we know better. We know better. Our milk, our gas, childcare costs, all of that is informing us of what's really happening. And there are factors that deeply impact the economy on a regular basis, like decisions made by the government regarding taxation and spending and budget allocation. All of that stuff, it impacts, directly impacts our economy. Interest rates decisions which is goes back to that monetary policy, international trade agreements, tariffs, all that stuff, trade tensions. It up impacts the economy policy related to business regulations, environmental regulations, financial regulations, 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 and more regulations. It, it stifles and it chokes out the economy, infrastructure, legislation, healthcare policies. If we don't, come up with something for healthcare, we're going to have a major problem, but I'm not going to talk about that today because that's another topic. But labor market policies, political stability, all of this stuff impacts us on a day to day. And when we're discussing the economy, we often hear about the unexpected, right? Like COVID. We didn't know COVID and the pandemic was going to hit. The recession, we saw things shaping up that led to a recession, but a lot of people were caught off guard. And then wars, you know, you obviously have to consider the fact that there are a lot of wars that are breaking out as well. And many people feel explaining the economy is just way too complicated because there's so many things impacting it, as I just listed. And there's so many policies being ran that you really don't know if this is going to work in the interim or in the long run. But for some reason, it feels good right now or it doesn't feel good right now. And it it just gets really convoluted. But it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. I'm encouraging you to look past the talking points, past the narratives, past the agendas, and base base your decision on what uh, you think you should be focusing on as an individual. Instead of like putting your focus on what they want you to believe or what you are not seeing that you know you are seeing. (laughs) Make it make sense, right? Just doesn't make sense. So ask yourself, what would you do? What would you do if your personal budget was being impacted by these unexpected forces, or you just haven't haven't followed a good fiscally response, you weren't fiscally responsible, you haven't followed a good budget, kind of like what's happening in our government. How would you prepare 
to have a strong personal economy is what I want you to ask yourself. What would you put in place in order to um, deal with some of these unexpected things like an emergency fund? We need a surplus in the government, but that's something you would do personally, right? Regularly reviewing or updating your budget, making sure that you're looking at your personal budget, your personal spreadsheet, right? Am I overspending? Am I not? Am I spending too much over here? Can I cut back over there? Identify and prioritize your expenses, right? What do I need? What do I don't need? What am I spending money on? And, and that I, that's not serious to me, like some of this climate change stuff. What am I doing? You would start to look at your insurance, right? Am I paying too much for insurance? How do I let the market dictate this? Can I let, is there something the government can do in order to address the insurance coverage, insurance issues? You'll start to explore additional income streams. How can we make more money? How can we open up think ways for other countries to be able to utilize some of our natural resources that they can purchase from us? Build flexibility into your budget. You will understand that there are things that can happen that are unexpected but you've got to make sure that you prioritize those things and you have some flexibility around it. And while we're talking about prioritizing, prioritize debt repayment. That's something that you would probably do if you found yourself in this situation. And so I would love it if I saw some of this response from the government. You would create a contingency fund for some of those expenses, like I said, that would pop up. And then ultimately, you'll pay attention to the economic trends. You'll see that things are shifting and things are changing. You'll seek professional advice. You'll put people around you that understands this. And then ultimately, you'll maintain some positivity because you know you're working a plan. That is what you would do personally. That is what our government can do today. So when you're trying to understand economics and political economics, I'm encouraging you to start by looking at your own personal, personal budget. Well, how did we get here? We weren't being fiscally responsible. We allowed our emotions to dictate decisions. We were looking for quick fixes, overarching, uh, this, this overreaching of the government, and it's just overly poor financial management. Ultimately, it's going to take all of us to get back on track, starting with you as the voter. Starting with you as the voter. And the best way to do it is to take it from this big grand government, big old thing and reduce it to your own personal economy, right? What, what does my personal economy look like? After the break, I'm going to give you a little kick in the butt. I got a little something to say when I, when I give you my take on the economy and how we could take this discussion back. You're listening to The Janelle King Show right here on Extra 106.3 FM. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Janelle King Show right here on Extra 106.3. If you missed the show, yes, you did. We only have one more segment left, so please go to allthingsjking.com, allthingsjking.com. You can also catch an encore episode at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning right here on Extra 106.3, or you can catch the podcast that drops every Tuesday. If you're listening to the podcast, great. You can always rewind it back. And don't forget Tusk Talks. If you hear something that you find interesting, please make sure that you go to my website, allthingsjking.com in order to um, participate in our Tusk Talk conversations. And uh, I think it'll be good. We need to have more conversations. 
But I want to close this episode as we're talking about the economy, which is part of my Hot 24 series. These are the hot topics of 2024, and the economy clearly is at the top of the list. And I want to close with a little bit of my my take on it. As I stated in the last segment, I want you to look at the economy from a personal perspective. Look at your personal economy, right? What is it? What's happening in your life that you, what would you do if you were overspending or you were in debt and how would you fix it? Because ultimately politics is personal. Politics is personal. And the decisions made in the political arena ultimately echo through the intimate details of our personal lives. And as we navigate a very complex landscape of policy and governance and candidates and presidents and all these other stuff in elections, it's essential that you recognize that behind every vote cast, there's a personal story, a personal aspiration, a personal challenge. At least that's the way it's supposed to be. And if it's not that case for you, I really want you to dig deep. I want you to dig deep and I want you to really think about it because ultimately that's what it, the way it should be. The choices that we make at the ballot box have tangible effects on our individual lives and on our communities. And it shapes the fabric of all of our shared experiences and how we all interact with each other and what we understand about each other. So embracing the personal nature of politics, what it does is it, it introduces us or allows us to begin to engage on a deeper level where we're fostering a society where people understand that their decisions, that their decisions impact so much, but that most importantly, your decision impacts you. It really caused us to have to consider the broader implications of what we're doing and the, the, the broader uh, 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 outcomes that we're producing as a result of our individual decisions. As individual people, we face a lot of different things. We face struggle and dreams and aspirations and we underscore it all by our political choice. Politics is personal because it's it's the overarching policies that typically lead to personal effects. And when we think about where we are, I want us to think past trying to control the outcomes of our neighbors. Because oftentimes what we find ourselves doing is we find ourselves voting on things that we think would better the world, things that we think our neighbor needs or oh man, the person over there living in poverty, this policy right here would be great for them. Or let me pick this diverse candidate because ultimately we want to make sure that we're reflecting the fabric of America rather than focusing on meritocracy. If you're making decisions because you think that it's going to create some type of outcome that's greater or more masterful or somehow it's going to impact the person beside you, then you're making the wrong decision. Because politics is personal you're bound to end up misjudging a situation or misunderstanding a situation you know we, we we've all have some very intricate reasons why we make the political decisions that we make we all have our reasons 
I think we need to get back to those reasons being associated with what you're dealing with every single day to the mom that's sitting at home trying to help their child go through their schoolwork and they're seeing their kid fall far and far behind and the school it seems like the school is just not getting it and you but you're trapped because you don't have a choice in the matter you can't get up and go and go to another school because unfortunately due to government overreach you're forced to keep your kid in that failing school unless you can find a way to move your entire family to another district i want you to look at that i want you to make a personal decision i want you to make a personal decision to support policy that is going to somehow lead to your child being able to get the proper education they need. So policy like school choice, give the parents an option. But when you're saying, no, I'm not going to support school choice because I think that ultimately somehow it's going to impact teachers who won't be able to get jobs or somehow what about the kids that will be left behind when you make decisions based off of these mis- these categorizations or this misjudgments or this understanding that comes from God knows where, When you do things like that, you find yourself in a position where ultimately you're probably going to make the bad, the wrong decision. Because it's personal. Politics should not be emotional. There's a difference between it being emotional and it being personal. It's too personal. So I want you to take a good look at where things are. I want you to take a good look at how you have been voting. How have you been explaining the political process? Are you somehow thinking that you're doing what's right because you believe that your candidate is the right candidate or you believe that your party is the right party? So as a result, what you find yourself doing is creating an environment where you're trying to control the outcomes of others based on what you think is best for them rather than encouraging people to take a look at their own personal economy. Look at your own balance sheet. You see things are not adding up. Go pull out that spreadsheet from three years ago. For those of you who budget your own spreadsheets like we do here, (laughs) Pull that up. Look at it. See what's changed. Look at how you can impact or uh, how, how, I'm sorry, not how you can impact it, but how the government has impacted your personal experience as an American. That's what I want to encourage you to do. I want you to look at government through the lens of, through your personal lens, through the lens of how you are impacting me. Because ultimately, by doing that, you'll create a collective response that will be best for all of us. Because we will all look at our own personal lives and see how we're being impacted and we'll vote according to that. And ultimately, the majority will lead. I thank you so much for listening to me right here on 106.3. This is the Janelle King show. I am Janelle King. 
I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Thank you for joining me. If you're listening to the podcast, thanks so much. Go back and listen to some past episodes or stay tuned for new episodes coming next week. Have a great day. There are hundreds of families who need help with their loved ones. As part of our Subaru Love Promise, Subaru of Gwinnett has partnered with Plan Pethood to help with animal transportation, adoption fees and clinics, and outreach vaccine clinics to help create a better world for animals. We've supported over 320 animals, 541 vaccinations, and 211 microchips during our Subaru Loves Pets Month initiative. To learn more about how we support our furry friends, go to SubaruofGwinnett.com. Hey, Atlanta, Hudson Mason here. Is a new roof still on your to-do list, but you've been delayed due to rising home service costs? Well, here's a fantastic solution from Accent Roofing Service. Zero down, zero payments, and zero interest for a full year. That's right. You can get your new roof now and start paying next year. Act quickly because Accent's incredible offer of zero, zero, zero with a 12-month deferred payment option for a lifetime roof system isn't going to last long. Contact the craftsman at Accent Roofing Service today, accentroofingservice.com. What are your plans for your business this year? Hey, it's Tug. Do you want to expand and grow? Aren't you exhausted by going to lenders, building a relationship, and a week later, you got a new person to deal with? You have to start all over again? You don't have that with First Liberty Building and Loan. The Frost family has been helping businesses grow since the 90s, and they want to know you. Unlike big banks, they want to partner with you. The Frost family knows the patterns. They know the ebbs and flows. They know business. Get to know them at FirstLibertyGA.com. Building a building? Buying a building? Buying a franchise? Expanding? Reach out to them. Spend 10 minutes with them. See if you're a fit for them and if they're a fit for you. You do that at FirstLibertyGA.com. And by the way, if you're a young banker and want to work with a team that is faith-friendly and has a culture of excellence, First Liberty might be a good match. Reach out to them today. First Liberty Building and Loan. FirstLibertyGA.com. That's FirstLibertyGA.com.